as teachers, we're inundated with all these great ideas of here's a new method and you should try this and you should try that. Not all of them fit neat, nice and neatly with the things that we believe. But if we don't know what we believe, if we don't know where we stand, it's harder to kind of like look through all of them and figure out which ones feel best. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Before we introduce this episode's guest, I want to take a moment to remind you that the interview you're about to hear is just one part of our exploration of this topic. You'll find multimedia resources, including a transcript of this episode, accompanying blog posts, videos, collaboration opportunities, and much more on our learning community. Visit bit.ly slash getmlresources, and that is all lowercase letters for more information. Our community resources are always free, they will always be free, and they are available when you need them, whenever you want them. Just use the search bar or our filters to find the resources you're looking for. If you're already a member of our community, visit elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. Now to this episode of Highest Aspirations. How might we design and ensure access to equitable professional learning opportunities, specifically to address the unique needs of multilingual learners? What are some tools that can be used to monitor the progress of educators through professional learning, and how do we measure its impact on student progress and learning? What are some strategies to design and implement equitable professional learning opportunities that are both introspective and connected to practice? We discuss these questions and much more with our guests Silvia Romero-Johnson and Mariana Castro, authors of the new book Advancing Equity in Dual Language Education, a Guide for Leaders. One note on the title, Sylvia and Mariana define leaders with a wide lens. So the information and resources shared in this book and in this episode are relevant and useful for any educator working with multilingual learners, particularly in dual language programs. But I would actually go so far as to say that it is useful for all educators working with any students. In this interview, we focused on one chapter of the book specifically dedicated to equitable professional learning. Needless to say, there is a lot more to explore in the book. You can read our guests' full bios on the show notes or on the accompanying blog post at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Silvia Romero Johnson and Mariana Castro, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. It's great to have you both here. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're very excited to be here with you, too. Yeah, same here. It's a topic that is, um, well, two topics really in one that are really kind of close to my heart. And I think a lot of people who are listening, and that's uh, professional learning and the topic of equity. And um, Sylvia, you and I spent some time kind of thinking about how we could bring these two topics together and hopefully come up with some ideas and inspiration for folks that are listening. So let's dive in. I want to start um, by talking about the challenges. You know, from your perspective, what are some of the main challenges that educators are facing when it comes to accessing effective and, again, the key part of this, equitable professional learning opportunities, uh, particularly as it pertains to multilingual education? Mm -hmm. So the first thing I wanted to say is that one is to acknowledge the current times, the moment that we're in, where our educators, all of our educators are feeling really stretched thin due to the shortage of staffing, 
uh, the ongoing pandemic, um, the needs to pivot for perhaps uh, virtually to, to teach virtually um, at a moment's notice, right? So I wanted to make sure that I acknowledge all of our hardworking teachers out there. And then within that subgroup of teachers who are working with multilingual learners, we know that the work is very complex and that, um, that all the planning and the delivery uh, is so time consuming. So I think it brings us to a time when uh, more than ever, uh, we have to think about what does support for our teachers, our teachers of multilingual learners look like um, and looks like, and um, how do we make sure that it is relevant to what they need to do, mm-hmm. that it's focused on what the field requires, you know, what the research in the field says are the best practices and, uh, and that we do it in a, in a way and a time that is part of the, the you know, contract time that they have to work and, um, and that uh, addresses the needs. So now more than ever, right, all of those topics have become so, so relevant. Yeah, you know, it... <laughs> It is a really, really interesting time, I think, for professional learning for so many reasons that you just outlined. I've heard many people say that sort of in the height of the pandemic, when they were teaching virtually, they got some of the best professional learning that they ever had because it was flexible. They could do it from home. So I kind of hit on some of that equity piece. Um, But of course, the challenges that we're facing are so real and so acute and so challenging for lack of a better term, that the professional learning really needs to be spot on for what it is we're, we're trying to, to do, which, which is kind of changing every, um, every moment. I'll, three things that you brought up there that I think are worth mentioning, that the, the learning needs to be relevant, it needs to be research-based, and it needs to be also within the contract time of teachers. Three things that I think we'll probably talk more about as we move forward. Um, but can certainly be challenging to kind of put all together. Um, and, and that like the relevant piece really has to do with it being job embedded, right? Like it has to be directly linked to the classrooms and the students that educators are serving. Um, so what are some ways that we can design professional learning opportunities so they serve the specific needs of students, which that the teachers are working with? I mean, how can we really make it, as the term that you use, Sylvia, relevant for teachers right now? Mm-hmm. Yes. So for me, it uh, focuses on understanding. So if we're going to talk about the professional learning that teachers in dual language programs, particularly, um, need, uh, it needs to be around the goals, right, of the program. Um, so the three goals of developing bilingualism and biliteracy, uh, the goal of you know, great access to grade level instruction, and of course, sociocultural learning. So if we focus on the goals of the program and we are very mindful about um, providing our teachers time you know, during the day uh, to be able to come together, form a community, and uh, work uh, around each other's strengths, um, as well as aligning the work with, uh, you know, with the standards that 
you know, they're working with. Um, all of that goes a long way to make it doable, to make it time, um, you know, time um, uh, feasible and, um, and it, it, where they can move directly from professional learning situations into the classroom and it's applicable sort of the next day. Yeah, uh, Sylvia, as you were talking, it just remind me of these, um, these internal versus external needs, right? And uh, the word equity keeps coming back to us. And as we were thinking about equity, equity in professional development, um, to me, it's like, who knows the needs of those students best? So who's having the voice in saying, in setting up the goals? Who's having the voice of thinking about what does it mean to be job embedded? Um, we were talking about online. That can be job embedded because the, the, the work of many of our teachers for weeks and months and for some even longer was online. So in thinking about whose voices we're hearing is the, the voices of those teachers who are doing the work every day and very importantly, the voices of the students, you know, understanding who those students are and what are their needs can help us also align and design professional development and professional learning opportunities that serve those specific needs. And I just wanted to mention another audience who are the parents, the family, yeah. Yeah. right? Uh, they will know our children, our students in ways that we do not. They see a lot of their strengths that we do not. And sometimes they see some of the areas that they need from growth that we do not. So it truly has to be a partnership. So when we're saying embedding, it's embedding in the context that we're teaching. It doesn't mean necessarily just inside the building, but inside the work that we do, inside uh, the, the goal and the vision, who are the students themselves. So, so that kept resonating with me um, as we put in, it's almost like a coin with two sides. And on one side are the idea of the goals and, and, and all those structures that we have. And on the other side is the voices, the voices who are informing uh, those goals and that professional learning. Yeah, Mariana, you brought up a good point and thanks for jumping in there. And that kind of leads me a little bit to my next question. I'm not going to sum anything up there because I think you both did a really good job talking about that. Um, so anybody who's listening, go back two minutes or so and listen to that again, if there's anything you missed, because there's a lot in there. But you just brought up the idea uh, that all our students are different. Uh, their families are different. There needs to be a lot of stakeholders being brought in, which brings up the idea about differentiating, right? Multilingual learners are not a homogeneous group. Um, by any means at all. They're just as different than any student in any group or all the students in all those groups combined. You have a lot of differences. Um, so for example, the needs of long-term English learners are, are quite different from those of newcomers and the strategies that we need to put in place to support those students are very different, which means then the professional learning that the teachers need to have to support those students that they have in their particular classrooms, schools, districts, communities, et cetera, um, need to be different. So the, the question here is, how does uh, successful professional development, by the way, I'm using professional development and professional learning interchangeably just for the audience. I mean, I know that they're, they can be two different things, but I'm using them interchangeably. H how does it, how, do, how, how does the successful professional development or professional learning address these differences? Um, particularly when it comes to this whole idea of taking an asset-based approach and again, providing equitable supports, not only the students, but also the teachers who are taking the, the PD. Mm -hmm. I can get started and then Mariana, you can um, follow up. Uh, so the first piece is understanding your students, right? Uh, students being at the center. 
and understanding the needs uh, because um, you know multilingual learners, as you mentioned, are not a homogeneous group. And uh, there's a plethora of, of data and information that teachers do have access to. They do need the time and support to be able to understand that data and, me, and being able to then develop actionable plans. Uh, but dual language programs uh, within the design of the program is embedded the notion that we are addressing the needs of all students. All students are considered second language learners or bilingual learners, multilingual learners, right? And so at all times, we are very mindful of what this, those second language development needs are for all students but particularly those students who, uh, who may need the most attention. Uh, and so being able to differentiate what type or what level of scaffolding uh, would be needed for different needs um, is part of you know, what, what an equitable uh, design of professional learning would look like. And then there's dif differentiation for the adults because we also have teachers that are on a range of years in the profession, uh, you know, skill set, particularly uh, particular skill sets, uh, background knowledge in certain areas, licensures, you know. So uh, our teachers themselves need a design that allows to utilize their strengths and that they can be a resource for one another and, uh, and can possibly even allow them to start moving into leadership positions mm -hmm. of being able to support their, their peers. It's a great point. The leadership idea missing in a lot of places, that pathway, not another conversation for another time, but I'm glad you brought it up. I wanted to add um, just a, a thought. And as you were talking, um, Sylvia, about all these uh, amazing expertise that we have, it made me think about, you know, when people are trying to learn about the past, we don't just have historians, right? Sometimes we have archeologists, we have sociologists, we have people who come from multiple different uh, venues and they look at the world in different ways. To get a good picture of the past, we need all those perspectives uh, so that it's a richer picture. Um, you need that collaboration. Similarly, when we're trying to figure out the richness and the gifts and the wonderful things that our students are coming, especially for those students who might uh, be seen through different experiences they have because they're being long-term ELs or because they've been their newcomers or, or they have different experiences. You also need um, a group of experts coming together. So the collaboration that needs to happen at our schools to discover and uncover those gifts um, is just critical. So as we're thinking about differentiation, it's differentiating for, for, for uh, the teachers in professional development, but also creating space for them to come and collaborate and work together. Yeah, that's collaboration piece is something obviously that's crucially important uh, in, in really any area. And I think perhaps, and I'm gonna get to this later and one of my questions just based on my own experience as a teacher um, seems to be missing in some professional learning uh, sort of venues and ideas. I, I, wanna, I wanna ask one follow-up question though, because Sylvia, when you first started uh, answering the question, you mentioned the importance of looking at data. Um, that's something that at Elevation we, you know, we we think seriously about, and we try to create, you know, programs that allow uh, um, teachers to be able to kind of sort of visualize that data and be able to do things with it that are useful to them. 
Um, and I, I'm not sort of going down the elevation road here. I'm actually thinking about other places that perhaps don't have that kind of tool. What are what is the best way for um, educators and dual language programs to be able to really not only access the data that they need to learn more about their students so they can differentiate the professional learning for their teachers, but to be able to actually like visualize it the right way and put it into action. And I'll, I'll put this question out to either of you. This isn't just for anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, when it comes to data, of course, there are different users uh, and for different needs or purposes. And um, so if I put myself in the, in the position of the develop, developer of professional learning for adults who are professionals in this area, there's a certain type of data that I'm going to need um, to have available um, you know, for the purpose of program development, program planning and improvement. But then when we get down to, you know, the relevant piece of um, uh, what types of data our teachers need, I, I think the area where we want to go, the, you know, we want to go towards is allowing teachers to be able to develop formative types of data that allows them to make uh, changes on the go. Um, and they can only do that if they have an understanding, of course, of what that overall bigger data, it is more standardized. Um, and uh, the staff that are at the system level can prepare that and get that out of the way so that teachers can focus more on the types of formative data that they need for the purpose of instruction. One of the things that I think about data is that we have done as a system a disservice to teachers in that more and more we ask students, we ask, I'm sorry, teachers to use formative data to make summative decisions. And we ask them to use summative data mm. to make instructional formative decisions. So I think at a, at a level, we also need to provide part of this uh, job embedded professional learning needs to be around data literacy. You know, what counts as data? Um, and when can we use, it's not about the type of data that is formative or summative, but it's how we use that data to make formative or summative decision-making. So I, I think that's key and it takes, it takes work. It takes different voices. Again, thinking about equity, it takes different types of data and it takes that time to play and feel comfortable to just look at the data and see and make observations before even starting to create hypotheses of practice. And I tend to use the, the term hypothesis of practice when we talk about hypothesis around data, because it's so easy. Sometimes it's so easy for us to say, oh, that happens because the student blank, or that happens because the family's blank, or we tend to kind of deflect and send that. So what in our practice might we be doing that could shift the way we, we're looking at the data that could explain what we're looking at the data. So of course, there will always be all these other contextual factors, but the more that we can bring it to our practice, create those hypotheses of practice, the more we will have opportunities to create intelligent actions. Unfortunately, sometimes we look at the data and before even just stopping and observing, we kind of jump to, oh, this is what we need to do. So the more hypotheses of practice we can have, the more actions that we can come up with. So um, I think both data literacy and looking at different types of data, uh, really allowing um, leadership and educators so that they start 
creating their own data and understanding that data can be an observation, can be a qualitative inf information that then you can transform into, uh, into you know, different representations so that you can read them and you can look for patterns. So I, I think data is just something we could probably spend another four hours talking about, but thank you for that follow-up. Yeah, I knew that I was running that risk when I asked that follow-up question, but I couldn't resist it because it's it's an important question. I mean, I'm gonna in a second talk talk about kind of my own experience as a teacher. Um, I was gonna talk about it in a different context, but I, that question came to my mind because as a teacher myself, I wouldn't consider my I wouldn't have considered myself somebody who is highly literate in sort of looking at data. And um, I really appreciate um, Mariana you, you talking about the idea of not looking at data and being sort of tempted to immediately come to a conclusion about it, or or even more dangerously in some cases, take an action when it could be a result of a variety of different things. Mm -hmm. um, and now as, you know, tool, it's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky topic, especially now, like given in some cases, the lack of data that we have, but in some cases we have even more data. Anyway, it's a long topic for another time, but I appreciate you, you kind of diving into it with not a whole lot of, uh, uh, of, of preparation. So I said I was going to kind of go back to my own experience, and and my experience as a teacher, um, and I think it's it's similar with a lot of teachers. Although I thankfully I think it's changing. I, I found most most and I won't say all, but most professional development to be pretty frustrating um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and I can picture a lot, all of the people sitting in the conference room, or uh, we used to have it in our in the course, the school course room, and somebody would be telling us something and there would be teachers who would be completely checking out because it wasn't really relevant. Um, it was conducted in a silo. And perhaps most importantly, there were not really good opportunities for real reflection and growth, sustained job embedded. I mean, it just wasn't like that. And I think it's changing. So put yourself in the position of the people who are giving that PD and a dual language program that want to create an equitable, equitable opportunities for educators. What should PD providers um, be thinking about when designing those reflection and growth opportunities in particular for their teachers? What's most important? What should be top of mind? For me, it's context, context, context. Right. I think many times um, where I see professional development go go sideways is when people are not able to connect to the reality that is happening. I think in order to that to do that, you need more of a, the, the planning of whoever is going to do the professional learning with the schools. You know, I think when we talk about professional learning, we immediately think of what's coming that is external. But we need a balance. We need to create space for people to hear new ideas, but also for people to really play with those ideas, contextualize them, and figure out what and how those ideas might apply to their to their setting. Um, I think that uh, having I, I was part of a, like a really interesting research project that was looking at college and career readiness standards and how they had impacted the education of multilingual learners and. Uh, in many ways they had, but in many ways they had not. And one of the reasoning was the professional learning. The professional learning, as, as we looked at data from different states, was being done to classroom teachers. Done to classroom teachers and being very intentional about this. I was wondering um, how intentional you were being with the two. Okay, good. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, versus doing it along with right. classroom teachers and just educators. And we, we use the word educators quite a bit, uh, Sylvia and I, because there are so many adults 
who have like this critical role in classrooms and that are working with students that are helping create that meaning. Um, you know, they may be paired professionals, they may be specialists, they may be uh, special education educators, they may be even our administrators who are instructional leaders, not just administrative leaders. So what, what sometimes happens is that the focus becomes, think about equity just on a single population of educators. So then we miss the opportunity to tell others or we, we start playing the telephone games that we're gonna tell some and then the information will be repeated. But when you do it together, you're creating meaning together. And then right at that moment, you're doing all these ideas that we talk about differentiation, all these ideas that we talk about accommodations can be done in the spot, can be really done thinking about, um, about what is good for all students, you know, like this uh, kind of universal planning um, or, or philosophy. Um, so I think that as we are thinking about, um, about professional learning, we need to be thinking about a couple of things. First is that contextualization so that uh, there can be real reflection on what the reality of those uh, people are, as well as collaboration and bringing everybody on board. It's hard in dual language programs because many times a lot of the professional learning is done in English. Even when it's about the partner language, there's mm -hmm. that uneasiness that, well, there are some teachers who are not gonna understand. So in thinking about equities, like how do we create opportunities for real reflection that is collaborative and that is relevant. Uh, and that might require additional times for people to, to, to kind of like work through it and really unpack it and think about what parts are gonna work in our site and, and what that might look like and which ones might not because not everything that, that you hear might work for your specific uh, context. And it's not because it's bad stuff, but it's because it will look different once you've um, made it a reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only other item I would add is that one of the most powerful professional learning opportunities I had when I was a teacher was something that the district I worked on, um, at offered, which was called classroom action research. So teachers were sort of mini researchers and we would come together monthly, the, you know, the group of teachers that had committed to doing this. And we would set the areas that you know, we were needing to develop this hypothesis of, of uh, you know, need or, or action. We would collect our own data based on um, data that you know, could be tests, attendance, et cetera, et cetera. But there were our own kids in our own classrooms. And uh, then we set out to test out this hypothesis and then we would write about our conclusions. So it was self-directed. It was you know, relevant because it was about my own classroom. So the more of those types of elements that we would, can include in the design of professional learning opportunities, the more adults um, are engaged and motivated with their own learning. Yeah, always nice to hear an example. Um, and I love that one. That, that's one that kind of covers all the bases there and that kind of puts things into perspective, particularly with how um, Mariana started answering that question with context, context, context. That is 100% context. Um, you know, it, teachers are educators, I should say, uh, it's a better term to, to encapsulate everyone, are really busy now more than ever. Um, and when we get busy, I'll speak for myself, when I get busy, either as an educator or in my role now, 
um, it can be difficult for me to kind of maintain the accountability that I need to get the projects done that I need to do. And so I don't want obviously somebody hovering over my head and micromanaging me and telling me what I need to do. We're all adults. Um, but there needs to be that level of monitoring and accountability, I think, with professional learning as well. So what what tools need to be in place um, to make sure that educators aren't only progressing, but they're also um, learning and that their learning is positively impacting uh, instruction? So I guess what I'm asking is along the lines of reflection, like how do we go about making sure that it's that it's useful, not only to teachers, but to the educators that I'm sorry, but to the teachers, uh, to the yes. Let me try that again. Not only to the educators, but to the students that they're serving. Mm -hmm. So I would say that um, if we can start by having um, a learning in the context of a community of, of staff, of teachers and staff that come together to accomplish a common goal. Um, so I would say knowing that your performance is intimately interconnected with your peers and your partners uh, at the same grade level. If it's a dual language program where one teacher teaches one language and the other teacher has the same group of students, but in the other language, um, we know that sort of our success is intertwined with you know, one another. And so that becomes a compelling reason for us to share uh, what we're doing, what we're at, that we, you know, that um, our goals are complementary. Um, so I would say that that when you have that type of setup, adults want to, uh, it develops sort of the motivation and it gives you a very powerful reason why you're not an individual doing something by yourself here on your own, but you're part of a team that's working on common goals. Yeah, and those common goals, I think it doesn't hurt to not only have common goals, but common goals in a dual language program specifically that are explicitly tied to the students that you're serving. Yeah. Yeah. So much of it is about community. I mean, the the example that I gave about the, the you know, the professional learning opportunities that I had that weren't great were always me in a silo having to do something on my own. Even if it was with my students or in my class, there just wasn't a connection there with the community. I think dual language um, context provide a really unique opportunity to really make these um, these kinds of professional learning opportunities more successful. So we, uh, you know, I learned about your work through the book that you've written. And, and in, in that book, which we're going to link to, and we'll, um, you know, we'll have all the information on there. I, there's a great framework in chapter four that I really liked. And I spent a lot of time um, with chapter four, because that has to do with the conversation that we're having now. And it outlines the five key elements of professional development for equity. So I know you can't see it as we speak about it, but I would recommend looking at it in the book because it's really useful. But I want to spend a little time talking about it, um, specifically two of them. So we won't get to all five. And but one is 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 the first one is is introspective. So I'm not going to kind of lead that in any way. I'd love for you to tell us what that means or what you mean by it and why it's so important. Yeah, I can start. Um, the idea of introspection, I think about it as looking within. Um, so in, it, it talks to uh, who am I as, an, as, a, as a person, as an educator. Um, I'm very much of a critical pedagogy. Um, Paulo Freire used to talk about um, students and how students are not like an empty vessel, like 
the banking method where you just make deposits? Well, as teachers, we're not either, right? We come with experiences. Um, my experience, I might look like the students I, I teach. Uh, I might, um, my, my students might be Mexicans, but their experiences um, are very different than mine, uh, just because that's the way life is. And if we are not sure in, our, in what drives us in our philosophy, it's really hard to then look beyond and look at the outside. So I think that the, this introspective um, is, is like really claiming ourselves, is thinking about what is it that we value, um, what are my identities, so that I can, and I can be positioned, I can create my position uh, with respect to my students, I'm more transparent, more clear, and I can be aware of my, you know, like when you're driving and there are areas that you can't see, uh, I can, when you're teaching, there are areas that you cannot see. So the more that you reflect on who you are as an educator, uh, about the identities that you portray, about the ways you, you may be seen by students, um, the better it is in, in you planning for, for that relationship building. I think just as important is being really transparent and clear with yourself about what are your beliefs and values. As, as teachers, we're inundated with all these great ideas of here's a new method and you should try this and you should try that. Not all of them fit neat, nice and neatly with the things that we believe. But if we don't know what we believe, if we don't know where we stand, it's harder to kind of like look through all of them and figure out which ones feel best. So taking time to thinking about what are what is it that I believe and how aligned is it to what I do and how how I came through my experiences to believe those things, that really helps us when we're thinking about that, that equity lens in, in, in like creating our vision from equity into a reality so that we don't either perpetuate the same systems that we are complaining about uh, and so that we create those new systems for, for learning and for being in the community or being with the community um, as, as we help uh, develop uh, students. So I, I do think that this introspective piece is kind of at the foundational level um, of for any teacher. Um, and uh, sometimes we do it a lot when we're getting certified and then we kind of like, okay, done. We put it in the little closet and we don't revisit it. But we are human beings who have experiences on a daily basis. Our students ideally, uh, hopefully they're helping also shape who we are as educators. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we should revisit. And it's not something that we should keep secret. It's something that we should share with those with whom we share the space of teaching and learning, who are colleagues, who are students, who are families. So that, that, that's in part that foundational work of introspection. Yeah. And you know, that I, I mean, it's, it's goes without saying that that can be uncomfortable for people, right? Um, particularly if you never do it, if you do it one time, there's a, you know, there's this, there's this advertised uh, session where you're going to go and be really introspective and really kind of like, make sure you get all the skeletons out of your closet. If it's portrayed that way, it could be really difficult. But if it's something that, as you said, Mariana, that you revisit, it's part of practice. What a great opportunity for professional learning. And I, I would say, you know, that, that's not only something that's going to help you as an educator, but just in your life in general. Um, and if that, that I think too, and, and jump in if I'm off track here, but I think is where a community can help as well because, and a really understanding and supportive community, because there are going to be people who are uncomfortable with that kind of, kind of uh, really sort of, you know, intimate introspection that, 
you're going to have to kind of admit that there are certain beliefs that you've either always had or that you've developed over time that may impact your uh, sort of ability to deliver instruction or to make sure that you're creating an environment that's, you know, socially, emotionally sound. Um, and that's very, that can be, that can be difficult for people. Have you heard of the Johari window? Uh, I don't know, Sylvia, if you remember, but Johari window is like a, a window for pains. And you can imagine like on, on one of the axes is things that people see about me or know about me and things that people don't know about me. And then if you were to look at the, the other axis, you could see it in two different areas, things that I know about me and things that I don't know about me. So you can see that there might be a, a really public pain uh, in the window pane where things that I know about myself that other people also know about myself. You know, as an educator, they know what I teach. They might know uh, what, uh, what is my background, but there might be areas that are hidden um, that I hide from others or there are areas that other people see that might be hidden from me. And there is this, this area that I might not even be aware and others people might not be aware. So it's through that community mediation, uh, being one with my community of colleagues, my community of, of students who are we're growing together that I have, I create that, that window that I know about me and that others know about me, I can make it bigger and it can be more transparent. It can help not just my students, but it can help me as an educator to grow. So um, as, as you were talking about, I was thinking about the Johari window about how it's, it's both that self-reflection, but it's that also reflection with my community. Mm -hmm. And I would, in addition to that, I would add that this introspection about knowing uh, where your beliefs come from, and particularly those, those very deeply held beliefs that we may not be aware of, or deeply held beliefs that we acquired, for example, when we first started learning about you know, second language acquisition, and the field, of course, we, we, are, we work in a field that's constantly evolving. And now as we learn better, right, we do better. Uh, we often have to confront the beliefs that we may have held as truths. And now, um, so it turns out, for example, you know, with let's say translanguaging, right? Or language separation, how it used to be that there, you know, the field advocated for strict language separation. And now through all of the research, you know, dual language teachers are confronted with, you know, the two languages are interconnected. Yeah. And so we have to be able to say, you know, I used to believe this. And now after uh, my experience and all of this learning and all of these new ideas, I'm willing to test out new hypotheses about all of this learning. Yeah. So it's a, another great example of why it needs to happen continuously, because the more that you've, the longer you've been around, uh, the the more you're going to be exposed to, and the more your beliefs kind of either are going to shift or have to shift, and you don't even know at sometimes why they shift or how they shift. You have to examine that. That takes time, and it takes practice, and it takes dedication, and it takes, I think, deliberate um, opportunities for high quality professional learning, right? Um, which is which is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to talk about these things. Um, it's another thing to kind of put them in their specific context, which I think we're, we're doing now. Um, so that, that was one part of the frame with the idea of introspection that I want to talk about. I said, we'd talk about two. Um, and the other one we've kind of already addressed a little bit that's, and that's connected to practice. Um, 
but there were some specific some specific examples about um, how we can design for this and how we can measure its effectiveness. Um, so talk us through that part of the framework. Do you want to go first, Mariana? You're in mute. Sorry. Um, yeah, um, the connectedness to practice is, um, I think it's an important aspect of professional learning, right? Um, we were talking about first, like what is introspective, what is uh, talking to me, but um, I think in many other um, uh, professions, uh, this idea of, for example, if you're um, a doctor, um, being close to your practice, that's part of your professional learning. For other educators, like doing, for example, a math teacher, doing the math makes you one with the practice. I think we forget about that sometimes when we're teaching multilingual learners, when we're in a dual language program. So in thinking about how we connect to that practice, we don't have enough experiences with bilingualism in a professional setting. So even for me as a bilingual, bicultural person, sometimes I might not um, have enough professional development opportunities. So as um, not just as educators, but as those people who are in charge of providing opportunities for, for professional growth, how are we creating those opportunities? And uh, I usually talk about this um, when for, for, the for professional development in the language, in the partner language. There are just not enough opportunities out there. And uh, I've seen lately, even those professional development opportunities are done in English. So, um, so I think that creating spaces um, and to this design for that, I think they're very important. Um, and uh, the, the question about effectiveness, I think that um, it's different to, to define when depending on your program type. So we are so used to, um, to talking about um, the, you know, how, how we're implementing things, if they're in an effective way or if they're not in an effective way, there's, there's even quantitative methods for uh, identifying that. Um, but we forget that the definition of effectiveness is very different for mm -hmm. depending on the group of students, depending on the teachers that you're working with and depending what the goals for your program are. You know, we, when we were writing this, um, this book, um, you would say that we, we focus very narrowly in dual language programs. But when we start talking to dual language programs across the country, we realized that actually it was a very broad yeah. definition of, of what the needs were or how effective was a program who was working, it was a one way um, around Hmong and English where there was very little, there were very little materials written in that language and that they had to rely a lot on the community for the cultural and linguistic experiences. Um, and, and how the, the idea of effectiveness there was gonna be very different from a, a standard space Spanish-English program that had been established at district level for many years. And then from a school that was Arab-English, that Arabic, Arabic and English in, in Texas, right? So I think that to talk about effectiveness, we have to first talk about, we have to first define it. And we have to define it within both the context of the type program type, but also of the context in the community where the program is. And the, of course, experiences of both students and teachers. Um, 
I don't know if you have anything to add, Sylvia. Yeah. So in terms of connected to practice, uh, for me, uh, you know, the question we used to always be, you know, is teaching a science or an art? It's like, well, it's both. But at the essence of it is it's a practice, right? And a practice means that um, that you are that it has all of those elements that we included both in this chapter around the the characteristics of professional development, uh, professional learning, as well as the entire premise of this this book, which is to plan, execute, and reflect. Right, like learn. You need to know who your students are, and then you plan, and then you execute, and then you reflect. That it, and it's an on, on an ongoing basis, right? And it's at the micro level uh, within a classroom. It's at the program level, and it's at the system level. Um, so, so for me, that's what you know. Connected to practice means that it's an iterative process of always getting better, identifying the areas that are the that have the highest leverage, and um, and. And, and finding out how you did and then setting new new um, goals for for you know getting better at it all the time. I could add uh, a couple uh, words because um, it's so easy to get lost when we're talking about bias and when we're talking about uh, uh, equity in a dual language program to get focused just on the language piece. But uh, if we could also expand that, in thinking about what type of biases and prejudices exist in our practice. You know, nobody is exempt. We all have a bias. And I, I think this idea that education is a neutral um, area is, is really, um, it's, it's really uh, a utopia, right? Like uh, really we're always, our, our experiences are our bias. So it's not about avoiding being biased, but it's about understanding where the bias is and what intentional actions we're taking to maybe change that bias or be transparent about that bias. Um, and how do we incorporate that uh, to, to challenge the systems in which we're working? Ultimately, we are, um, I, I love, uh, I've already talked about Freire, but I love how we talk. Uh, he talks about what we're building as educators. We can build, right, uh, a system that's gonna help everybody integrate into the system that already exists. Uh, but what a missed opportunity if we are not actually thinking about how we change the society and how we combat those those issues that we see as as bumps in the road, as as uh, sometimes uh, obstacles for our students to be um, to be successful. So in order to change that system, it needs to start with our practice. So thinking about intentional ways of changing our practice, to me, is again that connectedness with our practice, uh, our practice, connectedness in a intentional and transparent way, uh, both transparency to others, but also many times the most important thing is transparent to ourselves. Yeah, and you see the, the connection between those two parts of the framework, the connectedness and the introspection. I mean, it starts with that introspective piece. And what I keep coming back to as we as we continue to talk about how this needs to be iterative and you need to look at your context in particular and all contexts are different, even though we're talking about dual language, it just depends on the different needs. What do you need? What goes in between those things that you need? 
Um, and it's something that I think both of you have done really well in the book, at least from my perspective, is, is a framework, some kind of framework that's going to allow you to have enough structure to sort of examine uh, those pieces. And that's, again, I, I spent a lot of time in, on that chapter there, and I was really appreciative um, of some of those frameworks because I think they're, they're quite useful. Um, and so as we wrap up here, it's kind of a nice transition into talking a little bit about I'd love for you, we just kind of scraped the surface of a lot of pieces here, and there's a lot we could have gotten to, but um, but otherwise we'd be going on for, I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours, maybe we'll follow up in another episode. But for now, how can people learn more um, about the book or about the work that you're doing in general? Mm-hmm. Yes, so um, the book itself can be found um, on the page of Velasquez Press. It's called Advancing Equity in Dual Language Programs, a guide for leaders. Uh, So leaders uh, in a broad sense, not just administrators or those who have formal positionings as as authorities, but uh, all teachers and educators that want to work in this field from a stance of leadership. Um, so that's, you, you can also find us uh, in Twitter, right? We, mine is at S Romero Johnson and yours, Mariana. Yeah, mine is at La Doctora Castro, but it's L-A-D-R-A Castro, C-A-S-T-R-O. And we will make sure that we link to those because it can be hard if you listen. So if you're listening, you can go to elevationeducation.com and go to our community page and you'll find all that information, um, there. And one last question that I ask everybody, and I'm going to continue asking everybody in this new season of Highest Aspirations is, um, we've talked about your book, but I always like to people uh, ask people if there's a book that's inspired them in, in any way, professionally, personally, um, that they would like to share with audience members. And this is always a kind of a fun way to have an end of the year book list or give people ideas. In fact, that's mostly the books that I read or the books that people recommend. So um, what do you have for us to share? Sure. Um, so... So not a book, but still an idea um, that we talked about today. Uh, and that when I learned that it had a name, I, you know, so I'm, I've been looking through this. So su- subsidiarity. Uh, when I heard that it means that the people who are closest to it, to a, to, you know, to a situation or a challenge are the people best positioned then to find the solutions to it. And we talked about that today. Um, So I'm reading a lot about that. uh, And I'm very, very intrigued because, you know, on one hand, I've been so used to talking about systems, right? And system improvement. And now I'm thinking about it from a different perspective of the people closest to the challenges are best positioned to solve them. Um, so that's one, but uh, a recent book um, around data is uh, a book called Street Data that I have found uh, that is, you know, very, very aligned to the way I have, you know, we have worked around um, understanding data and what data is, is the most uh, helpful and useful. Uh, the authors are Jamila Dugan and Shane Safir. Great. Well, that's both a new idea, subsidiarity. Did I get that right? Okay, great. And and a new book. We haven't heard of either of those. So thank you, Sylvia. How about you, Mariana? Uh, for me, are two classics uh, for books. And I love that you talk about subsidiarity because that's, uh, in, in a way, that's the topic of one of them. And it's um, it's Pedagogy of the Press by Paulo Freire. Mm-hmm. I think anybody who goes into education should read it um, as, you know, 
as someone who who is a little bit of a control freak, I love to problem solve for others. And, and Pedagogy of the Press really asks you to step back and think about who is in the middle of it and how do we uh, you know, help these people lead that effort. Um, it's just been phenomenal. And then this other idea about being and becoming, um, there's uh, a book of Borderlands by Gloria Saldua. And uh, I, I feel like this idea of in-betweenness uh, really, really for, for students and for educators who sometimes feel like they're caught in the middle, it really expands how you view that as a, as a positive, as, a, as an opportunity to be able to live uh, in both worlds and across both worlds, but living as a cross being the space where you are and not necessarily having to cross uh, those borders. So those two books have been kind of like my guide uh, throughout my education my growing up. Great. Those are two recommendations. I've, I've read Pedagogy of the Oppressed and Borderlands is actually sitting on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, but somebody else recommended that. So um, really appreciate those are two, as you said, Mariana classics. And then um, you brought some new ones to the table, um, Sylvia. So really appreciate that. Um, and with that, um, Sylvia Romero Johnson and Mariana Castro, thank you so much for joining us. I, again, I think we just scraped the surface of many of the ideas um, in the book and, and just in general, the work you're doing, but really an important topic, I think, especially now. And we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.